This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Now, the meme that I received after friending someone from my high school reunion. Well, more correctly, responding to a friend request, so now we're friends, and now I'm getting her memes, which included the one was labeled Science Tip. It states you can distinguish an alligator from a crocodile by paying attention to whether the animal sees you later or in a while. See you later, alligator. And also this one, me. It's not about how many times you fall. It's about how many times you get back up. Said the officer, yeah, but that's not how a field sobriety test works. And since we're talking about memes, which are currently being sent around like party favors, there's one from Jeff Tiedrich, which was forwarded to me by I don't remember who, but Jeff said, and I'm paraphrasing, holy crap. Vaccine mandates are causing teachers who don't believe in science to quit, nurses who don't believe in medicine to quit, and cops who don't believe in public safety to quit. I'm failing to see the downside in this. There's another one I like that somebody sent me. Why is charging $50 for a $6 case of water during a hurricane considered price gouging? But charging $700 for a $10 vial of insulin is considered health care? That's a good question. And, uh... Pursuant to our discussion at the end of last week's show about tax avoidance, if we tax billionaires too much, they won't be able to buy the essentials they need, like NFL franchises, islands, and tax-deductible think tanks founded exclusively to legitimize fringe beliefs on how billionaires shouldn't have to pay taxes. Anyway, I promised a few anecdotes from that high school reunion. I think I'm going to spread them out over the next few weeks. When we were originally contemplating names for this program, one of the possibilities that made the finals was Radio High School, because we considered that knowledge and the things we were being taught in high school should kind of be a lifelong pursuit. I know, Mr. Merlin, by that I did not mean how many kegs of beer you might need for any given particular party. Oh. But, you know, everything, geography, English, U.S. history... But we didn't go with that one because it seemed like people would think we were a high school radio station slash radio show. I do hope also in the weeks to come I can bring back uh, the other of my high school instructors that attended this reunion event. He was uh, widely appreciated for, for the, the knowledge he imparted to us back in the day and, and, and how he made us think about what was going on in the world. I told him that I, I thought that his instruction definitely uh, played a role in, in, in how this show operates. Therefore, I hope that we can bring uh, Jerry Cavellio on in this program to discuss a topic that he, he made allusion to at, at, at a little gig that we had. Uh, he was referring to Eugene V. Debs, a guy he considered to be a personal hero. NPR did a discussion of Mr. Debs several weeks ago that was excellent. I, I would aspire to do something, you know, half as good. And 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 by God, we're gonna we're gonna give that one a go. I think if if Mr. Cavellia will agree to join us, Eugene V. Debs ran for president five times, once from a prison cell, 
from prison, he still earned something like 900,000 votes back in like the 1920s when America had 100 million people. Pretty darn interesting man. We, we should talk about him. But since on this program we talk about anything we want, whenever we feel like it, I, I have an item in front of me that I, I just, I frankly can't resist. This comes from our favorite science magazine, New Scientist. And how can you resist an article titled, Giraffes Like a Fair Fight? Said the brief piece, when male giraffes battle over territory or mating rights, things get nasty fast. The animals batter each other with their long necks and slash and stab, often fatally, with the horn-like ossicones on their heads. But new research shows that when giraffes spar, as a way of establishing social hierarchies, they adhere to a strict code of ethics, much like that of boxing. I know the article does not identify the giraffe Marquis de Queensberry, but states that the bigger ones don't pick on smaller rivals. Each giraffe has a preference as to whether it swings its neck left, southpaw, or right orthodox. And they position themselves during sparring so that neither fighter has an advantage. For southpaw versus orthodoxy, they go head-to-head. For two of the same, it's head-to-tail. Sometimes older males act as referees, stepping in to separate the youngsters, though they may just be trying to consolidate their own social standing. Who knew? And if, dear listener, you've never checked out Giraffes Fighting on YouTube, we suggest at Radio Parallax you start with the comedic version, which I'm sure you could pull up by Googling Alan, 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 and seeing what happens. In fact, we want you to do just that and then drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Now, we don't talk about sports often on this program, but we like to once in a while. It is an important part of our culture after all. Since we mentioned that check swing fiasco on last week's show, let's, let's return to the subject of baseball, in this case, the briefing, which appeared in the week in the July 9th issue about baseball's latest cheating scandal. According to the briefing, the average major league pitcher this season struck out one in every four batters, which they described as being on par with all-time greats like Sandy Koufax and Nolan Ryan. If you do the math on that, 27 outs in a ball game, you strike out every fourth guy, you pitch an entire game, that's seven strikeouts. It's pretty good. But here's what struck me. They noted that Major League Baseball began sending this year's game-used balls to a lab where they found suspicious dark amber-colored markings that are sticky to the touch on a majority of the specimens. Apparently a team executive told Sports Illustrated this should be the biggest scandal in sports. The article notes that pitchers have always been allowed to use rosin extracted from pine trees to moderately improve their grip. In this unadorned state, a baseball is shiny and slippery, and nobody wants a fastball slipping from someone's hands and beaning a batter. In recent years, pitchers began lathering their arms with sunscreen and mixing that with rosin to form a stickier-yet composition. Then apparently they discovered hair gel. And spider tack, which is a glue meant for the world's strongest man competitions, or pelican grip, made for bat handles. To the question, have they gotten caught, the magazine answered, until recently umpires mostly looked the other way, as did teams, rather than call attention to their own pitchers. But the stickiness of these new substances isn't subtle. A ball once stuck to a catcher's chest protector like Velcro without consequence. Another team was spotted playing with a sticky ball in the dugout, laughing as it dangled from players' open palms. Anyway, something should probably be done about this. Uh, The piece also notes that the league-wide batting average 
This year was 237, the second lowest mark in Major League Baseball's 146-year history. Now, back during the height of the steroid era, the batting average was about 270. Striking out one batter per inning once the mark of an electric pitching performance is now the league norm. And there were seven no-hitters thrown in this past year, which tied a modern record. And believe it or not, this does take me back to high school. Because I remember the Giants' Gaylord Perry was famous for his spitballs. I was watching a game at a high school buddy's house once, at which point the umpire went out to the mound to take a look at what Gaylord Perry's balls looked like. His baseballs, Mr. McMillan. And I was sort of laughing because everybody knew that Gaylord Perry and I guess also Whitey Ford and Joe Necro were, were just, you know, they were spitball pitchers. My friend's older sister looked at me and said, they've never been able to find it, referring to the substance which may or may not have been spit that Gaylord was dripping onto the ball. And I was struck at the time, and I'm still struck these many years later, at how fans just don't want to see anything bad about their team. Everybody I knew thought it was pretty funny that Gaylord Perry was throwing all these spitters. But she just didn't want to see it that way. You know, in odd way, this also kind of reminds me of when people describe an activity and say, hey, look, it's perfectly legal. It's pretty much a guarantee that anytime you hear anybody say that, you, you know they're talking about something a bit shady. Although I do want to add, in case anybody questions it, that Radio Parallax has always been and it continues to be perfectly legal. Including our regular look at the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the week, it was a good week last week for mysteries after numerous New Hampshire residents reported their homes were shaken by a large, prolonged series of booms. No seismic activity was detected. Well, no, it's New Hampshire. But satellite imagery suggested a meteor may have exploded over the state. We may need to look at that one a little bit further, but in conjunction with that, we have this. Ruth Hamilton of Golden British Columbia told the CBC News that she woke up on October 4th to her dog barking. The next thing was just a huge explosion and debris all over her face. After realizing that something had punched a hole in her ceiling, she called 911. While answering the operator's question, she moved a bed pillow and discovered a melon-sized meteorite that landed inches from her head. What intrigues me about this is, how did the dog know? Now, meteors do break the sound barrier when they slow down. In fact, the one that hit near Sutter's Mill back in 2012 was heard all over the Sierra Mountains as a loud boom. So I guess if it broke the sound barrier a mile or two away, the sound could have arrived there before the meteorite did, thus alerting the dog. How fast do you have to, to throw a stony meteorite to, punch, to puncture the average roof? Well, we just don't know. But hey, there's an experiment for someone to, to, to perform. Anyway, we'd have to say it was a bad week last week for sticking it to the man. After Alan West, an anti-vax Texas former congressman who is now battling COVID-19, tweeted the following from his hospital bed. Instead of enriching the pockets of Big Pharma with vaccinations, we should focus on monoclonal antibody therapy. Now, critics who are not anti-vax Texas former congressmen but are 
better a little, but apparently are a little bit better with math, noted that a vaccine dose costs the government $20. Meanwhile, monoclonal antibodies enrich Big Pharma by about $2,100 per patient. So we say hold the monoclonal antibodies in reserve and in the meantime, get vaccinated. And finally, it was an ugly week for, I guess you'd say, I don't know, victims of the woke. With this item, a University of Michigan music professor who screened a clip of Laurence Olivier's Othello has been forced to withdraw from teaching the class. Bright Ching, age 65, and we would note a composer who survived China's cultural revolution, apologized, but to no avail. Students pointed out and complained that Olivier darkened his skin for the 1965 film. A fellow professor said that showing that film was a racist act, while students demanded Sheng be fired for failing to create a safe environment. Yes, he apparently showed a film clip of Laurence Olivier with darkened skin. And that, boy, you can see how that deviates from a safe environment, can't you, Mr. McMillan? Good Lord. Now, it it is true that Olivier's performance of Othello did indeed tint his skin a little darker because he's playing the Moor. Othello is a Moor, a somewhat imprecise term which refers to North Africans or the North Africans that came across the Straits of Gibraltar into the Iberian Peninsula in Spain and Portugal. Ethnically, these are most like the people you find today in Morocco, a kind of mix of Berber and Arab cultures. Which I think it's fair to say certainly left uh, their imprint on the darker skin of the Portuguese and Spanish. Something I would add my dermatologist compliments me on. (laughs) Pointing out that being a little darker has great advantages. He, he points out, faces a danger of sunstroke if he goes out without a hat. I think there's a misunderstanding that, that... Shakespeare's Othello, although an African, need be portrayed by a sub-Saharan African or someone descended from said populations. In a historical sense, in a literary sense, in an ethnic sense, this is is just incorrect. And I got a question. Why is it a racist act to show an old movie clip with an actor who had the makeup people darken his skin a bit, but it's not a racist act to um, put on a production of Say, Hamilton, wherein Puerto Rican Lin-Manuel Miranda portrays Alexander Hamilton, the first secretary of the treasurer, who admittedly was born on a Caribbean island, in Hamilton's case, the little island of Nevis, currently part of the Republic of St. Kitts and Nevis. But he was of British ancestry. I've not seen the production, but I understand most of the cast are people of color. Portraying people not of color. I mean, not to belabor the obvious, but if you've got a $10 bill, pull it out. Take a look at it. Does Hamilton look Puerto Rican to you? Anyway, let's get off that topic and, and maybe find something amusing here. And to that end, I'm holding the letters to the editor section of The Economist. Not generally a treasure trove of comedy, but I had to laugh from the piece sent in by Paul Greenberg of Massachusetts to the paper in response to an article they had about an election in Canada. said, Mr. Greenberg, Canada just had a pointless election. That's in your September 25th issue, which made me pine for the old 
rhinoceros party. It consistently offered tantalizing election promises that spiced up the discourse. These included providing higher education by building taller schools, instituting English, French, and illiteracy as Canada's three official languages, ending crime by abolishing all laws, and adopting the British system driving on the left, but phasing it in gradually with only buses driving on the left to begin with. In the 1970s, the rhinos offered a package of corruption and incompetence and claimed then that the then-ruling Liberal Party stole their party platform. Now, among the other magazines we generally rely upon to produce this program, in addition to The Week and The Economist, would include The New Yorker and New Scientist. And I was struck by a link between the two of them when, upon reading The New Yorker, I saw the following cartoon. The New Yorker, of course, is famous for its cartoons. Shows a man up at the lectern addressing a crowd. He's saying, And so, while the end of the world scenario will be rife with unimaginable horrors, we believe that the pre-end period will be filled with unprecedented opportunity for profit. And new scientists apparently had just written about that pre-end period and its possibilities for gain. And I quote, Planting more breadfruit trees could help make food supplies more stable as the planet warms. As climate models suggest, they will grow well across the tropics for many decades to come. There's an especially big opportunity in tropical Africa, where large areas are suitable for growing breadfruit trees and will remain so till the end of the century. So it's nice to know as things go to hell across the planet and we heat up, there'll be a window of opportunity for the breadfruit people. And speaking of African food-producing trees, a segue I'm certain we've never used before, it turns out that the famous African baobab tree is now being domesticated. Farmers seldom plant baobabs because they take between 8 and 23 years to flower and potentially begin bearing fruit. But a pair of researchers in Ghana got them to flower in less than three years. Now, I had no idea that baobabs produced something that you could eat. You've seen these trees in Madagascar and parts of Africa that look like they're sort of, you know, upside-down trees with their roots in the air. They're quite striking. But little did I know that in parts of Africa, the African baobab is an important food source with its fruits, seeds, leaves, flowers, and roots being edible. Anyway, apparently this tree is in the process of basically becoming domesticated. Of course, when we talk about using baobabs and breadfruit and everything else to keep the world population fed, no one ever seems to sit back and say, well, you know, maybe a better idea might be to not have the world population grow so we have to feed it. I'm sort of horrified to realize that I was having conversations on that topic in high school. It seemed to be believed by the more liberal elements that I would talk to that this was not really a problem because we would be able to grow hybrid varieties of crops that would be able to feed the multitudes. And I would ask, well, what then? After we fed them and they continue to grow and they continue to reproduce and we have more people, at what point, what, what, at what point's the party over? And to that, I would say half century later, well, we don't know, but we're going to find out. And here's an item we're not maybe as up on as we should be. A piece in the New York Times last month, dated September 17, noted that the House Oversight Committee was widening its inquiry into the oil and gas industry's role in spreading disinformation about the role of fossil fuels in causing global warming. They're calling on top executives from ExxonMobil, Chevron, BP, and Royal Dutch Shell, as well as the lobby groups, American Petroleum Institute, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to testify before Congress next month. Well, next month is this month, 
and haven't heard a lot of press on this, but I think we need to, to see what's going to happen. Although what's likely to happen is that the oil people will be asked some pointed questions by critics. They'll be tossed some softball questions by people who support the industry. In the end, they'll be shamed somewhat by their bad behavior. In fact, some, some members of Congress may even make the shame-shame motion with their two fingers. Oh, and by the way, in our second segment today, we have uh, Dan Bacher lined up to talk about what was going on down in Southern California when apparently some knucklehead boat dropped an anchor on an oil pipeline and managed to foul Huntington Beach. We do know that the House Oversight Committee had initially focused on Exxon after a senior lobbyist at the oil giant was caught in a secret video recording saying that Exxon had fought climate science through, quote, shadow groups, unquote. Well, we'll see what Dan has to say about remediation of our oily coast. It'll be interesting to see whether the state and local authorities do a damn thing about it. But you will take some comfort in knowing that the threat, the existential threat to our lives in California caused by lawnmowers, leaf blowers, and string trimmers will be somewhat curtailed, according to our legislature, by 2024 when they will ban all such gas-powered lawn tools. Now, the fact is pretty much everybody hates leaf blowers. Here's a part I don't understand. Apparently, this also includes generators and pumps. The State Air Board defines small off-road engines as combustion engines with less than 25 gross horsepower, including those found in lawnmowers, string trimmers, chainsaws, golf carts, generators, and pumps. Now, in some ways, uh, there's no doubt some advantages to using electrical power, but, you know, I've noticed that sometimes during windstorms and, and the like, electrical power can fail you. And as reported on this program, uh, jurisdictions like San Jose are making it illegal to put gas lines in in the future. You're going to have to heat your house with electricity, like it or not. Of course, the question then is, how do you generate this supposedly clean energy? Hydroelectric's not a free ride. And for that matter, neither is solar. For that matter, neither is wind. As we move to electric cars, people are pointing out that there's going to be a humongous problem with what to do with all of the spent batteries. They've not yet figured out what to do with this, nor what to do with all of the um, solar panels, which also have a lifetime. Throw them in the ocean. Yes, Mr. Miller, I suppose if they did dump them in the ocean on top of the pipelines, that might give the pipelines some protection from anchors, but uh, I, I don't know. And since we're talking environmental stuff, I have to return back to something we made passing mention of last month. We're not sure that every cloud is a silver lining, but the cloud of wildfires, which were extraordinary this past year, causing the highest CO2 emissions in decades, do have something of a silver lining. Studies of satellite data seem to indicate that most of the carbon dioxide released by, say, Australia's wildfires last year got sucked out of the atmosphere by a giant ocean algal bloom, which was seeded by the nutrient-rich ash. Pretty interesting stuff. They estimate the vegetation combusted produced 715 million tons of CO2 in the atmosphere, roughly equivalent to the entire annual emissions of Germany. That led to fears the fires would be a major contributor to global warming. But research suggests that about 80% of that CO2 had been reabsorbed by ocean algal blooms that began growing when the iron-rich ash from the fires rained down into the water. And satellites are also being used to um, reveal the secrets of water-guzzling farms in California. 
In a new push to stop further depletion of California's shrinking aquifers, state regulators are turning to satellites, technology once used to count Soviet missiles during the Cold War. In a piece produced by CAP Radio, it's noted that water surveillance got a big boost when California passed a law in 2014 that aims to protect the state's aquifers. It places limits on the amounts of water the farmers are allowed to pump. I would say this is overstating the case a bit. I know that it's a big boost to California when we pass a law in 2014 that, that takes effect like, I don't know how many years in the future. I, th- I think it kicks in like in 2030. This is something else we need to talk to Dan Bacher about. I'm sure he won't do that today. All right, we got about five minutes left in the segment. Let's, let's do a couple of obituaries to lighten things. We got two names to talk about. One, everybody knows. One, not enough people know. The one everybody knows is Colin Powell. A veteran of the Vietnam War, Colin Powell spent 35 years in the Army and rose to the rank of four-star general before becoming the first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He later became Secretary of State. His oversight of the U.S. invasion of Kuwait to oust the Iraqi army in 1991 made him a household name and prompted speculation for nearly a decade he might run for president. The obituaries note that Powell ultimately decided against running for president but did join George W. Bush's administration in 2001 as the first black person to represent the U.S. government on the world stage, Secretary of State. His tenure was marred by his 2003 address to the U.N. Security Council in which he cited faulty information to claim that Saddam Hussein had secretly stashed weapons of mass destruction. That's, that's, that's the story they're putting out. Here's the deal. Either Colin Powell was a, just a flat-out giant liar, pants on fire, or it was the dumbest guy ever to be Secretary of State, or perhaps both. In the opinion of this radio program, Colin Powell was told to lie by his superiors, and being the good soldier, he went forth and did so. He promoted an unjustifiable war, and for that we do not forgive him. Some years back, I think it was about, I don't know, when we were first started doing this show, we, we found a, a, a survey of the career of Colin Powell and read from it extensively. And it turned out he had a long history of covering up things that should have been uncovered with an eye toward advancement. Some commentators are calling him an American hero, and in one case, the most honest man I've met, All we're going to say is, no, he was not an honest man. He died of complications due to COVID-19, by the way, although he did have underlying health problems. Now, the guy that too few of you have heard about is A.Q. Khan, who also passed away this past week. Abdul Qadir Khan is best known to the citizens of Pakistan, where he is a hero, and also the world at large as the father of the Islamic bomb. To quote from The Economist, when India set off a nuclear bomb in the Rajasthan desert in 1974, describing it rather implausibly as a peaceful nuclear explosion, a young Pakistani metallurgist in the Netherlands was ready to volunteer his services to his country. A few months later, A.Q. Khan was explaining to the Prime Minister, Zufikir Ali Bhutto, how uranium could be spun in centrifuges so it could be used in bombs. Within a decade, Pakistan had the ability to build and test a nuclear device. In 1998, it did so following a series of Indian tests. Although Khan grew up in India, he was a Muslim, and when that British state of India was partitioned into India and Pakistan, he fled to Pakistan. 
According to The Economist, years later, speaking to his biographer, he would recall the intimidation and theft to which he and his fellow Muslims were subjected to by the Indian police during their journey. Shortly before he reached the border, they stole the golden pen he'd been given as a graduation gift. Khan had evidently been under surveillance for years when he left the Netherlands in 1975, along with stolen blueprints for centrifuges and details of the companies that supplied their components. In the years that followed, having provided Pakistan with nuclear know-how, he sent up a dense corporation network to sell his information first to Iran, later to North Korea, which provided missile technology in return, and to Libya. Yes, a one-man nuclear bomb provider to the axis of evil, as described by George W. Bush. It's noted that the black market he set up was the biggest and most advanced network of nuclear proliferation ever built. Its full extent remains unclear to this day. Evidently, the CIA, alarmed with uh, Khan's dealings with Muammar Gaddafi, infiltrated his organization and tracked centrifuge parts from their Malaysian factory. And Well, they had them diverted to Britain. And they set out to put enough pressure to make sure this, uh, this nuclear program Khan set up was dismantled. In February 2004, Khan appeared on Pakistani television and admitted to, quote, unauthorized proliferation activities, unquote. He said it was, quote, an error of judgment, unquote. Pakistani officials professed themselves shocked that their prize scientist, the only double recipient of the Nishan El Imatiaz, which is Pakistan's highest civilian award, had been up to such mischief. Khan spent years under de facto house arrest, said he took full responsibility. Of course, he also admitted later that he saved the country twice. The first time, when I made Pakistan a nuclear nation, he boasted, and I saved it again when I confessed and took the whole blame on myself. We don't regularly offer thanks to the CIA on this program, but if indeed they stepped in and stopped uh, nuclear proliferation at the hands of AQ Khan from putting a nuclear bomb in the hands of jihadists, well, I think we all, we all owe them a bit of an attaboy. Note in closing that despite their best efforts, A.Q. Khan was never assassinated by the Mossad, and he died in his bed, also, it turns out, of COVID-19. All right, we've got to bring this to a close, and Mr. Millen insists I not end on obituaries. Let's do one little final item here about cryptocurrencies, which we've had some fun with. According to The Week, a pair of German investors are taking cryptocurrency trading tips from a hamster. The hamster, known as Mr. Gox, runs on an intention wheel that selects a currency to trade, then enters one of two tunnels, <laughs> which one they designated buy, one designated sell, which automatically triggers a trade. Mr. Gox's anonymous owners said the experiment was inspired by seeing others throwing a lot of their savings on the crypto market without having a clue of what's going on there. He thought he'd see whether his hamster would make smarter investment decisions. <laughs> Now, supposedly, we can't verify this, Mr. Gox's portfolio is up nearly 20% since June, which would have him outperforming Warren Buffett and the S&P 500. Let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for Dan Bacher.